It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. If you send an ad out, has an ad ever changed anybody's mind? Like, do you get those postcards and go, oh my gosh, you know what? I can't vote for Bob. The way that you show the community that they're important and valuable to you is you redirect those resources. It is more effective if the candidate themselves are saying, hey, for every $5 you give me, please spend $5 at a local business or please donate $5 to the classroom of your choice on donors choose or please you know, give $5 to this, this domestic violence shelter instead of giving your money to consultants who will clearly just set it on fire. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Pantsuit Politics. Thank you for joining us. We are thinking today about the Senate races coming up in Georgia and trying to see what we can learn from races in swing states that unfolded in November. So Tiffany Bond, friend of the podcast, independent candidate for the House of Representatives, has come on to talk with us about Maine's Senate race. Famously, Sarah Gideon raised a lot more money and had a lot of enthusiasm, but Susan Collins ultimately won. And so Tiffany and Sarah talked about reflections from that race. We'll share that with you in the main segment. But first, we're going to talk about what's going on with COVID-19, with the vaccines, with education, kind of everything that's unfolding right now. Before we get into that conversation, we wanted to share that we have a little Pantsuit Politics holiday gift guide that you can check out in the show notes. If you're looking for a last minute gift, listen, it could be for yourself. It could be your friend who you're always sharing Pantsuit Politics quotes, episodes with. We have lots of ways to support the show, show your love of the show, or just gift to a fan of the show in your life. So check that out. The statistics right now on COVID-19 are pretty grim. Over the past four days, as we sit down to record, we've had about 10,000 deaths from coronavirus. We're nearing an average of 200,000 new cases every day. And I was reading this wonderful piece in The Atlantic that we'll put in the show notes that 
just succinctly described this as a split screen because mm, we have I love that, that. That's exactly what I was going to say. I love that split screen analogy. That we have that dire news on one side and the incredible progress being made on vaccines on the other. We're seeing that play out in real time across the pond in the UK. They are going to start vaccinating people this week. We have the FDA authorization hearing um, Tuesday, December 8th, as this podcast comes out, and then hopefully we won't be far behind them. But, you know, it is such an intense tension between seeing the numbers get worse and worse and worse and also seeing the vaccine start to be distributed, either the UK or knowing it's right around the corner here. It's not going to be, you know, a perfect, seamless process. There's already reporting that the hundreds of thousands of doses we thought we would be receiving for first responders and long-term care facilities are not there. There are doses, you know, the Pfizer vaccine in particular takes two, but there's not as many as we were expecting. States were expecting to, to have a flood of this vaccine coming to them, and instead it's looking a little bit more like a trickle, which is really disappointing. But keeping our eye on the prize, educating ourselves about the vaccine. And this seems like a good point to share that we are going to have Dr. Chris Baer on on Friday. He is an epidemiologist and an expert at John Hopkins, and he's going to talk us through this vaccine technology, the speed at which it was developed, clinical trials, so that what we really want is for all of you to go into your holiday seasons educated and prepared and like really empowered to talk about this next stage of the pandemic with your friends and family members, like that this is what's coming. This is what we all need to know so that there's lots of public information. You know, I think that that individual education component of public education is essential. And we know you guys are the best at it. And we wanted to really get an expert in your ears to walk through this so that you're well-versed and well-prepared for those conversations, because that's the stage we're entering, right, is, you know, it's not going to be tomorrow that the vaccine is rolled out to everyone. Right now, we're really what we really want to spend our time and energy on as they prepare to authorize these vaccines and distribute them is to educate ourselves and our neighbors about what comes next. In the meantime, we're thinking a lot about COVID and education as new reporting comes out showing enormous gaps in learning for students, enormous racial and economic disparities for the quality of education being received and just access to education, serious issues around students with special needs. And we're just trying to in a way that gives lots of grace to everybody involved in the educational process, school boards, teachers, state officials, students, parents, everyone gets lots of grace. Also see what we can learn from what's going on right now and what the next steps ought to look like. I think the research, and there's been a, a pretty good amount of research on the impact of the spring semesters and the beginning of the fall semesters on student learning is like the fullest embodiment of the nuance and complexity of our education system, because it all wasn't terrible news. The numbers on reading looked pretty good. The numbers on math looked a little worse. Some populations where we were expecting, I mean, I think people expected to see a big drop off in learning across the board. And we didn't see that. We didn't see that. We saw what we've been talking about with education on this show and what COVID has revealed, which there is equity issues. And that if you are in a marginalized population, whether you have a disability, whether you are a child of color, whether you come from a low socioeconomic background, whether you lack access to technology, then you see that drop off. You see dramatic losses. You see these numbers coming out from localities where failing grades have increased 110 percent, particularly in populations um, like the disability community. And I think it's just to me, it's like the fullest manifestation of there's not one thing wrong and there's not one solution that's going to work for education. I feel like COVID is forcing us to face the reality that public education is not one thing, right? It's not one thing for one type of child at this sort of, 
uniform vision that we have in our heads, especially if you don't work in public education, because people that work in public education don't ever think that. But I do think there's this sense of like public education as a thing. COVID, like everything else in public education, isn't going to act one way because the children in public education aren't one way either, right? Like we have this incredibly diverse population across localities, socioeconomic backgrounds, gender, race, everything. And it's just, it's laying it all bare. Monday on Patreon, on the Nightly Nuance, I talked about a lawsuit that's been filed by children through guardian ad litems in California against the state of California for perpetuating inequity. And one of the comments from our listener, Brooke, that I think so reinforces what you just said, Sarah, is that she's learned that large systems inherently work well for people who fall within a standard bell curve. But if you are more than one standard deviation out on either side of that bell curve, you probably aren't being served well by the large system. And I just thought that was such a succinct way of demonstrating that public education has an enormous challenge because there are so many kids outside those standard deviations and every single one of those kids matters in their potential and their mental health and how much they're being challenged and how they're connected to their school environment. And to try to serve that range of needs remotely and remotely week to week in many cases, instead mm-hmm. of decisions being made for long-term periods, it's this constant sense of, are we going to get back in the classroom or not? It's almost impossible. And what I find helpful in this research is less about critiquing what's been done so far and more thinking through, okay, what are the plans from here? Because Mm -hmm. we have a range of capabilities coming back to our classrooms when we go back to a normal way. And we know that some students are probably going to be propelled drastically ahead of others because they've had really engaged parents who've pushed them even harder than they might have in school. And then we have people who are going to be falling so far behind, and we're going to have people whose basic needs for attention, nutrition, activity, affection haven't been met at all. So it's just, it's enormous. And I hope that there are the resources somewhere in the system to be doing that planning right now. It's hard to imagine that, though, because just keeping things afloat is taking so much effort. Yeah, it feels like public education is also in the sort of split screen. How do we deal with the crisis right in front of us? And how do we adapt and address the issues this crisis has further exposed? And that's really hard. It's really hard. Here's what I hope happens on the level that, you know, each of us personally can control. Um, let me just be vulnerable and say here that um, participating in my child's education in the way that distance learning has required has exposed the ways, even as sort of the the classic nice white parent that I am, the ways that I sort of just abdicated responsibility, right? Just said, I'm going to send them. I'm not going to think much about it. I know there's equity issues. I'll do what I can at my local PTO meeting, and I'll I'll vote the way I'm supposed to, but that's about it. I need my kids to go back to school, without a doubt. But I hope that when they do, that I don't abandon the lessons that this you know, distance learning has required of me, right? If nothing else, then realizing that it's hard to teach a fourth grader math. And, you know, my child has benefited from me going over that math homework at home instead of just saying, which I have said in my life, you get him for eight hours. If you can't handle it, then then maybe he shouldn't learn it. Definitely said that at points in my life. Just been like, I give him to you all day long. I don't want to have to do anything once he gets home. But in the same breath saying everything should be individualized. And not taking that investment on myself when I get home of what my kids need individualized and really just delegating, delegating, delegating to the public education system without seeing myself as really an essential component of that. And, you know, 
I think to a certain extent, when we say we're going to, when we come back from COVID and we're going to start adapting and we're going to start innovating, like, it's going to take that ongoing investment. And I don't mean like showing up and knowing we have the answers, but showing up and realizing we got exposed to the problems in a way we never had before. And realizing that rebuilding from that and rebuilding stronger is going to take an enormous amount of vulnerability, an enormous amount of just continuing to ask these questions and face the problems open-heartedly without offloading it all into the institution itself. I guess just acknowledging like we are the institution. When we say public education suffers, well, it's public education. So that means that the public is an essential part of that, not just as parents, not just as teachers, but as citizens. And this institution, as we have all seen through the pandemic, needs an enormous amount of care. You know, I don't think there's going to be one easy checklist we can work through, even with the Biden administration, once the, the pandemic is over, to say, well, we'll just work through this checklist and that will solve it all. I think dedicating ourselves to this institution that has, you know, continued to sort of limp along is is the work of truly like our generation. I think it's the work of the parents who've who've sat with their children at tables during distance learning and seen the public education system up close and personal. Like that's going to be the ongoing work of our generation, because that's an experience, you know, God willing, that won't be around again for a long time. And that that sort of behind the curtains peak, that experience at the table, working through simplifying fractions <laughs> when you're tired and exhausted, like that's something we all need to take with us. That's something we all need to remember as we move out of this, hopefully, over the next few months and think about, well, what do we want education to look like? How do we want this uh, this institution to begin to heal itself? I think a question to hold on to in that process is how can we both accept that responsibility and adopt a posture of humility as we mm -hmm. brainstorm what comes next? Because school is one of those things, we've talked about this before, because we've all been on some level, we all think that we have expertise to bring to the discussion. Yep. And now our kids have truly been through something we have not. That was true before, but it's certainly true now. And so what feels right to us or what worked in our day is not going to get it done for this generation mm -hmm. of kids. And I hope that we can be really open-minded. One last thing I want to say about this, a real good news bit to come from that study is that if we are reading with our kids at home, they yeah. are going to continue to do pretty well. And I don't think we can send that reminder enough. And I'm also really grateful for organizations like um, our listener Savitha is the executive director of Tandem in California that works really hard to just get books into the hands of families and give those families resources to make the most out of reading. And I think that's so important. And in households where that is an easy step forward, just the more we can keep these kids reading, the better. I would love to see, you know, why we're thinking through this and innovating. I would love to see, and I think there are organizations doing this, bedtime math comes to mind, where we have that same approach to math, right? That we have this, we clearly have this disjointed approach where we have really adopted and made reading a part of our routine. And we do that with kids and we have books everywhere and there are lots of fun ways to engage with math. But the results of the distance, you know, the learning, this research shows that they felt kids fell behind in math at a much uh, stronger rate. And I think you're right. I think that's because there's, you know, math is not it's not a part. We don't give, you know, fun ways for kids to engage with math at baby showers like we hand over books. And look, that's hard for me. Math is not my strong suit. Like when I'm sitting down trying to simplify fractions, I'm having to YouTube some of it. OK, but I think that's something we can think about and 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 really work on within sort of the parenting culture is how we think about math and how we engage math with our kids and not just math teachers or, you know, computer programmers, but the, the rest of us who don't see math as a, as a strength 
It has been really helpful to me to follow and engage with Back to Basics curriculum on Instagram. We'll put her link in the show notes as well. She sent me this packet of manipulatives to work with Ellen on, and Ellen loves to get out the tiny colored bears or the little shapes that fit together in different ways. And that has just been such a godsend to help make math like a fun game that we're playing instead of a piece of school. Mm-hmm. And she has lots of ideas on Instagram about how you use that stuff. It's been very helpful to me. Before we hear your talk with Tiffany Bond, Sarah, I felt very hopeful about legislation that advanced in the House of Representatives on Friday, even though I know this legislation will not pass the Senate. On Friday, we got a 228 to 164 vote to decriminalize marijuana at the federal level. And this legislation would also expunge some federal convictions for nonviolent marijuana offenses and institute a 5% excise tax on marijuana. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And even though I know this won't pass the Senate, to me, to continue to see momentum around decriminalization of marijuana is a huge part of making our justice system more equitable. If you've ever known someone who had a marijuana offense, you see how quickly what to me is such a small thing spirals into something that can just be devastating. And that happens over and over. And it clearly happens more frequently to individuals of color than to white individuals. And it's just, it's wrong. And marijuana helps a lot of people manage pain. And this tension between the states and the federal government over it is silly. And so I hope this gives some good momentum going into the Biden administration on an issue that I think America has developed a pretty good consensus on. Yeah, to me, it's such a win-win. It addresses so many of the priorities of the Biden administration and many Americans, which is addressing the racial disparities and the conviction rates. It is addressing some of the ongoing concerns about mental health. I know so many people who have depended on THC to ease anxiety during the pandemic. And, you know, it is for the most part, I'm sure we're going to get some emails, a pretty safe approach to managing anxiety. And definitely there's so much evidence with regards to medical marijuana and and managing long-term chronic pain. And so not just that, but I think it's also this chance to build trust, to show the government hearing what people want and then doing it, to, you know, expand the tax base, to bring in tax dollars when a lot of locales are suffering with that right now because of COVID and, you know, decrease in payroll taxes. And I just, you know, on so many levels to me, this just seems like a win, win, win. And I'm so glad they put it forward. Next up, we're going to hear Sarah's conversation with Tiffany Bond. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You got to get it off your chest and you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon-priced manicure, Olive & Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive & Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon-grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive & June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive & June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. I'm so excited to be here today with Tiffany Bond. Tiffany ran for the United States Senate in Maine during 2020. She ran for Maine's 2nd Congressional District in 2018. And for our new listeners who haven't met you yet, Tiffany, you were on our show twice in 2018. It's two of our favorite episodes. You you professionally work as a family law attorney and a mediator, but you came on our show in 2018 because you had a very unique approach to fundraising. So for all of our new listeners, I think that's an excellent introduction to Tiffany Bond as a candidate. Well, thank you so much for having me. I thought it might be fun to come back and get an update and and maybe uh, do some lessons learned from Maine. I know a Mm -hmm. lot of people were very frustrated with Maine's outcome. And uh, certainly for me, it was like screaming at the sky while watching a slow moving train wreck because you could (laughs) see like if you weren't in it the way that I think a lot of consultants are in it, you could see the whole time exactly how it was going to blow up. We've got a really important Senate election with two candidates in Georgia coming up. And I thought, you know, great way to catch up and great way to learn lessons from Maine and how not to repeat Maine in Georgia. Right, right. But first, tell our listeners who are new to you your very distinctive approach to fundraising, which I think is particularly relevant in 2020 because we have all these charts where Democratic Senate candidates outspent Republican Senate candidates by massive numbers, spent all this money and still lost? Well, it turns out you can't buy an election. Mm, fascinating. I know, right? And so in 2017, I decided to run for office. I had never really contemplated running for office before. Um, I... I'm an attorney. I enjoy being an attorney. It permits me to be ethical almost 100% of the time, which I also enjoy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things that I tell my clients is, you know, you show you want to be a good parent by being a good parent, right? It's, it's a choice. It's a, it's a physical expression of what you believe in. And I wanted to apply that lesson to being a candidate. So I really have a problem with money in politics. I think that right now it is virtually impossible for an average middle-class person to run. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a pretty average middle-class person. I drive a minivan. I have one bathroom. You know, we live in a modest home. <laughs> we, we're, we're pretty darn middle-class. So um, when I was running in 2017, people kept saying, oh, I want to give you money. I, I, you know, I, I want to, I, I want to invest in you running in this race. And I I really want to support you. And that was great, but I didn't want to do any of the stuff they do. Right. Like I hate political ads. Do you know anybody who likes political ads? No. And I think that's such a good point because I think this year is like where political ads and particularly political fundraising email jumped the shark. Like so many people were giving for the first time. And then like, I regret doing this. I should never have done this. 
Well, so Maine has a different voting system. We have ranked choice voting here. And so we have, I mean, we've always, even before ranked choice voting, had independents in the race, and I'm an independent. Um, I know a lot of your listeners probably are Democrats, but I, I'm an independent. Um, Maine's independents sort of feel more like Democrats elsewhere, and our Democrats maybe feel a little less so. We, we've got a very strange political landscape. And so... Um, it's been odd to be in two big races and watch the Democrats get support nationally and just channel it into sheer waste and not living the message. And so I'd watched that before I ran for office and I thought, I j I'm not going to do that. I think that you tell your community where your heart is by where you put your money. Mm -hmm. And I just, I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to look corrupt. I didn't want to spend all of my campaign time fundraising. I mean, if you think of the amount of energy it takes to raise a million dollars in a year, if you take a couple weeks off for vacation or because you have kids, whatever, you know, if you have 50 weeks to fundraise and you do it 40 hours a week, you have to raise $500 an hour to get a million dollars. And the <laughs> main Senate race, um, this wasn't direct spend. I think the D Democrat had a direct spend of around 68 million, but the whole race was almost 200 million in the system. And we are a cheap media market. <laughs> so it was, it was like being assaulted on a daily basis, dozens of times per day. You couldn't turn on the TV. You couldn't turn on the radio, your phone, places where you never had previously had advertisement. Everything was jumping at you. The emails, like you, you just, you wanted to turn all technology off mm -hmm. and just sit in silence. <laughs> yeah. We refound we our DVD collection. It was, it was pretty bad. And then in combination with that, we had um, the pandemic, of course. So the kids were being asked to watch YouTube videos that also had political ads. It, it was everywhere. Oh, it's so true. Oh my gosh, so bad. So anyway, but in 2017, to, to loop back to that, what I did is I said, you know, I just don't want to do that. I want the money and the resources and everything to go to the community. So I said, I don't want to do fundraising. Let's do main raising. And it was kind of cheesy, but that's what, what we ended up with, um, you know, in good part, because anything else that was similar to that, Google to porn and that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so that one doesn't Google to porn, or at least it didn't in 2017. I, I don't know if I've Googled it lately. Um, and so what I did is I said, take the money and don't give it to me. Take it and either invest it in a small business by buying something from a small business, give it to a not-for-profit, um, support a charity. These all need to be market rate arm's length transactions. So if you're buying something on Etsy, you're buying it whatever the advertised price is. And if you're donating on donors choose, you're, you're getting a tax write-off for the amount that you donate. But use the, the little area that says, you know, notes to seller or notes with your donation and say, hey, Tiffany Bond wouldn't take my money. She asked me to invest in the community. And so I found your business or I found your charity and this is a great cause. And um, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's change how we look at politics. And so I did a lot of investigation before I went into that because I didn't want to feel like buying votes. So it needed to be that market rate arm's length transaction. Um, it's, it's really essentially the same as being at a grocery store checkout and gossiping with the clerk, right. And saying, mm. oh my gosh, have you, you know, have you seen that Joe down the street is running for mayor? You know, here's what I like or don't like about him. I of course ask people to stay upbeat. Not sure everybody does, but you should. Hmm. Um, and so we did that. We didn't raising instead of fundraising. We started it in 2017. Um, in 2018, I made ballot. I spent less than $800 of my own money campaigning. Um, most of that was just like postage and gas. And I got 5.7% of the vote because we had ranked choice voting. It was a very close election. It went to ranked choice voting. It ended up flipping the race. And um, I'm sure the Democrat strategists would not agree with this message, but they also didn't have the direct communication with voters that I did. So I can tell you with a pretty high confidence level that that's what flips the election away from a Republican who really bothered me. I didn't care for that Republican. I didn't think he should be in office. I attempted in 2020 to run it in a statewide race. So the problem with the second congressional district is 
it's huge. There's about 375 municipalities. So it was very difficult to say, hey, if you're outside of Maine and you want to support me in this race, invest in a small business, you know, donate to a charity. But it check the list and make sure it's one of these 375 towns. That that was that was a lot of steps. Um, and I like the idea of a statewide race. And so I wanted to say, hey, um, you know, anywhere in Maine, any small business, anywhere in Maine, any charity, anywhere in Maine, any teacher, anywhere in Maine, go ahead and support them and, and give the money that you give to me, whether it's $5, $500, make sure you include the Maine raising hashtag and just talk about the business, talk about what you like about my philosophy, tell them to look me up and, and we'll do it that way. And I really didn't care for the way that Susan Collins has conducted herself for the last couple of decades. So that was a good race for me. Um, unfortunately, the pandemic hit and it, it sort of sidelined my campaign. I did run through the end, but it was uh, it was a fairly minimal impact on the race. Um, but had we been able to apply it, I think you would have seen a, a huge change in the outcome. And I think probably Susan Collins would have lost if it had been applied a little bit better. But the problem was we were drowned. We were drowned with millions and millions of dollars that were wasted. Mm. And I think we all see it, right? I mean, I see it happening in Georgia. I've been sort of frantically saying, hey, guys, maybe don't buy every single ad space. And if you want to tell people that you are interested in helping them, we can help them instead. I mean, that $200 million in Maine, that, that would have been life-altering for most of our residents. We would have had a year in a pandemic where nobody had to pick between food and heat. So true. So yeah, that's main raising and a sort of meandering <laughs> the way 2020 feels with no timeline. Uh, now, now yeah. when you decided to run for the Senate and you were trying to get on the ballot, you ended up suing over the pandemic regulations, which you felt like were really repressive to try to get the 4,000 signatures you needed to be on the ballot, right? I did. Um, I lost the initial battle and I actually ended up jointly um, sort of squashing the um, the lawsuit because somebody intervened and tried to make it get about them in a very awkward way that if you really are interested in, you can go see the filings there. Um, they're eccentric is probably hmm. the best word I can apply to them, but I did. Um, and, and, you know, I knew there wasn't a huge chance of success because here's the bottom line. The laws in our country protect those who govern us and the standard that they're held to is not, Hey, is this a reasonable request? It's, did you go out of your way to, you know, murder or torture this person, right? This, the standard our government officials are held to is incredibly low. And we saw that in the Trump administration, right? Yeah, you know, people would sue and they would be like, well, it's probably not great governance, but also it's not like technically illegal or it's not really their duty. And I, and I think we see this play out in lots of areas, um, when you see suits, like I, I, there was a lawsuit not that long ago where, you know, it was ruled that it's not the job of the police to protect and serve, <laughs> despite yeah. that being the model, of, like a ridiculous amount of police forces. So, um, it, yeah, it, it wasn't as successful as I would have liked. I think that I had a, a pretty compelling case, but I mean, the standards we hold our government officials to are kind of awful. Mm. Okay. So tell us watching what happened in Maine. The first thing we want to know is, listen, here at Pansy Politics, we stand hard for ranked choice voting. And you had ranked choice voting in the Senate, in the Senate campaign. So how did that play out? What did you see? What did you notice? What did you learn? Well, so the problem is it didn't go to ranked choice voting. Susan Collins just won. Oh, it never even got below the 50%. Mm -hmm. So they'd use it. Because the campaign run against her that had the money was just that bad. I mean, you actually mm. had to try to, to make it that bad. Like, I can't tell you how unpopular Susan Collins is in a lot of the states. She's also popular in parts of the state, too. But, uh, you know, the argument that, that was needed and all of the analysts just skipped independence entirely. And, you know, something that's becoming less unique, but has been historically sort of unique to Maine, is we have more unenrolled or nationally it would be called independent voters than either Democrats or Republicans. Like we are the big, biggest voting group um, and we don't necessarily vote the same, but there's more of us. And they ran a campaign 
both both Gideon and Collins ran campaigns that addressed the independent voter without addressing the independent voter. And Susan Collins has been doing it for a lot longer and she's way better at it. Mm. And so you can't try to out Susan Collins, Susan Collins, right? I mean, that's, I think that we saw that in a bunch of entrenched races. People were trying to either come at candidates or come at incumbents with a candidacy that said, I'm not this person. That's not a very good pitch. Or they tried to out that person, that person. Hmm. And both of those were tried in Maine, and neither of them is an effective strategy, particularly if you're looking at actual swing voters. So I, I've done kind of like a video demonstration of this. I should probably re-up it on, on social media. If you look at the left and you look at the right, especially in a ranked choice system, you know, Republicans are generally going to vote Republican. Democrats are generally going to vote Democrat. You can adjust those by how passionate people are and how many of them turn out, but you're not super likely to change the voting proclivities. The people that you have to speak to, and they're not necessarily ideologically in the middle, but they're people that aren't emotionally attached to either the Republican or the Democratic Party. And our races don't attract those people. Mm. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's why you're seeing losses is Republicans generally vote a little bit more consistently and they generally vote for Republicans more. You still um, think that's true in this election when there was such historic turnout? Well, Maine always has high turnout. I mean, we had a historic turnout for us, but it's... Uh, Main politics, that part of main politics, I don't know if that necessarily carries over to other races because we're such a different political climate. So one thing I was reading about main Senate race and particularly the calculus of ranked choice voting was this was the first Senate race under the ranked choice voting, correct? No. Was Angus King's race the last one, the first one? Yeah, so that was, so Angus King's was the first one that could have gone to ranked choice voting. And in a lot of sense, I mean, this was just like Angus King's race. He just won. Okay. It never went to ranked choice voting. So it seems like what's happening is the, particularly the incumbent campaigns are just ignoring ranked choice voting <laughs> and pretending like it's a first to post and that the challengers are making the same mistake. Like I was reading Correct. about how Sarah Gideon, the local media, left out the two independent candidates of the debate. Regularly. Yeah. Right. And so then when she, you know, this columnist in one of your local papers was making the argument that like, if she had included them and said, no, I won't come unless you include everybody and acknowledge that there are voters attached to these ranked choice candidates and started to, instead of just thinking about it as first past the post, acknowledging like, this is the strategy we want to get, we want to get to the ranked choice because it would probably help her that that might've been the smarter move, that it's one thing if you're in the incumbent and you're just trying to get past 50%, but to be the challenger and pretend like you're still first past the post when ranked choice voting could actually help you is the mistake. Correct. And that, that's actually a point that I made um, pretty early on. Um, the, the way that the campaign was run was, it was just appalling from the beginning. I mean, uh, and every time I spoke up, I got, oh, you're an independent. You're just trying to ruin it for her. And I'm like, no, I kind of want Susan Collins out of office. And I prefer it's me to replace her. But good gravy, I want her gone. I, I, everybody was excluded from the race. The, the way that this race was run is it looked like it was an attempted purchase by federal level DSC. I mean, that, that's what it looked mm. like. They they took a race. So, um they took a race that was already running. There were already multiple candidates that were Democrats that were running in the primary and they dropped in a DSC endorsed candidate. And even before they dropped her in, so when one of the candidates entered the race, Betsy Sweet, she launched her campaign. I'm running for the US Senate. Betsy Sweet is very well known. She'd run for governor before. She's been an activist for a very long time. She almost single-handedly helped develop our clean election system. So although her political ideology is not in the same space as mine, I certainly have respect for her as a candidate. She launched her campaign and in less than 24 hours, there was a not so subtle message sent 
out that said, don't give any money to her. We have another candidate coming in. And it was remarkable enough, the field clearing that they did, um, if you aren't familiar with field clearing, it's basically chasing all the other candidates out of the race. And so what happened is they dropped in Gideon. She was endorsed by the DSC before the primary. She came in with millions of dollars just thrown at her, tons of endorsements, people who, you know, I as an independent and other um, the, the Democrats in the primary, I mean, leaving aside my dislike of, of endorsements generally, there were certainly a few organizations I reached out to and said, you know, hey, when are you going to be um, doing endorsements? They said, we're not going to do anything until after the primary. We want to give everybody a fair shot. We want to know who's on the ballot. Great. And then suddenly they were endorsing Gideon. So that wasn't accurate. And it actually, like this election really undermined a lot of the nonpartisan organizations that do have political activity in the state. It, it made a lot of us who are independent step back and be like, wow, you know, you say you're for X, Y, Z, but you're not. So they did this phenomenal field clearing exercise. The primary was a joke. Um, th there were at, on the primary ballot, there were there were four candidates that made ballot. Three of them were GLBT. <laughs> and, you know, the Gideon couldn't even step back on a day that was related to, you know, GLBT issues and say, hey, you know, I realize that I'm in the forefront here and I have the money, but this is a day when we should really be listening to people who are these vulnerable categories. No, I mean, it just completely ignored those, those categories and said, I'm the best candidate for you. Um, and, and just didn't participate in forums, didn't show up in indivisible groups, um, had multiple, multiple events canceled. I know I was invited to events that were canceled because Gideon wouldn't show. Some events went on without her, but, you know, had absolutely no views because she wasn't there. And every bit of energy went into making sure that nobody had resources but Gideon. And that was a huge mistake because with other candidates and a ranked choice vote, if you're supportive, if you're inclusive, if I had been the money candidate, I would have said, I'm not going to participate in forum unless all the candidates are there. I'm not going to participate in a debate unless all the candidates are there, even the ones that are a little eccentric, because this is about democracy. And this is a year when we really need to be protecting democracy. With well, and they're basically campaigning for you in a way, right? If you're the if you're right. the hands on favorite and sure, you have lots of money and you can reach try to reach as many people as you can with television ads. Why would you pass up the opportunity for people down the ballot to campaign for your side, at least, and lots of varied in different ways. They're going to reach people your ads won't reach because for, if for no other reason, then they might know them and they right. might have personal connections with them and relationships with them and their outreach is going to be different. And then if you can move to the ranked choice and you know they're not going to win, their votes are going to go to you anyway. Exactly. So essentially everybody's campaign is not guaranteed to collapse into the favorites campaign, it's, it's not guaranteed. And in Maine, if they don't like you, they'll just no vote you. <laughs> they just, yeah. they, they won't vote for you. Um, they'll, they'll vote for another candidate and they will just won't rank you at all. Right. Um, so it, it just could have been such a different race. So, it, you know, if the primary had been inclusive, what would have happened is you would have had, uh, you know, the, the three candidates, they would have, had their supporters, not all of them, but a lot of them would have been like, hey, you know, my candidate didn't win and that sucks, but I'm willing to work for you because you were really supportive of listening to my candidates, different opinions and how things were done mm -hmm. and showed where you guys get along and where you disagree on policy. And that was very respectful. And I feel heard. Right. But that was completely skipped. They skipped the whole I feel heard part. So independence, of course, you know, we're the ones that swing races in, in Maine and we're watching this and we're like, wow, we're not going to trust anybody who will shank their own party members. Like, why would we trust you? You just totally trampled over everybody in your party and like a complete mockery of a primary. So, you know, they went through the primary to that extent. And then, of course, the same thing happened with other uh, once you got past the primary, the behavior didn't change. So, um, you know, as soon as there was a winner declared in the primary, Gideon and Collins are like, I challenge you to five debates. Well, I challenge you to 16, one in every county. And independents were like, hey, yo, um, 
<laughs> we're happy to debate and we'll have a real substantive debate instead of just yelling about Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi. Like we'll we'll have a real debate with you on issues, which it would have disfavored. I mean, both candidates, but ultimately probably would have benefited the Democrat because what you have and, and you were alluding to this earlier is if you'd had that full, rich, supportive voice from the Democrats saying, hey, listen to me. Also listen to the independents. If they get knocked out, I'd like you to consider me as your number two. You know, please, this is where we get along. This is where I think that I'd advance your policy goals. And not only do you potentially pick up all of those independents, but the other thing that you do is you, you spread the fire. If you had five people on a debate uh-huh. stage, you have four people taking hits at Collins. Right. And Collins only able to fire back at one. Right, right, right. The, the humbling part of this, if you're the preferred party candidate, is that you have to acknowledge that in doing this, you know, there's a chance that you might swap places with the independent and you might be the one who loses and they might be the one who wins. But, uh, you know, Democrats have been asking us to suck it up for 100 years. So maybe they should suck it up a little, too. Right. I mean, not to be too snotty about it, but the, if you want if you want independence to grant you the respect and courtesy of listening to your candidate, you have to extend that courtesy to our candidates. And in a race choice voting system, it is beneficial for you to do so. It is beneficial for you to respect democracy. It is beneficial for you to say, hey, you know, we agree and we disagree on these things and listen to both of us and make your own decisions. It is beneficial to respect voters. And that didn't happen. Instead, they took a whole bunch of money and basically set it on fire, but not close enough to anybody where they could at least like warm their hands in the winter, because that might have actually been helpful. So now how do you think this applies to the Georgia Senate runoff? Because now we do just have a first past the post. It's not the jungle primary anymore. You just have two candidates. Correct. How does that change your perspective? I mean, what do you think there is to learn? I mean, because it's not just in Maine with the ranked choice voting where we had incumbent Republicans that were thought to be vulnerable winning by, you know, 10, 20 points. That happened lots of places. Yeah. So I think that's where you get back to the money part of it. And I think that's where, you know, I can come on your program in maybe a way other people can't because I can tell you this is how you use money in a way that swings people to your cause, Right. If you send an ad out, has an ad ever changed anybody's mind? Like, do you get those postcards and go, oh my gosh, you know what? I can't vote for Bob, right? Or, uh-huh. oh my gosh, I'm going to vote for Karen. Like this, this, this sold me. This one postcard, man, I'm all in. In fact, let me call up the headquarters and I want to donate and I want to volunteer to call me. No, those, they don't change anybody's mind. You might as well be setting the money on fire. And the, the way that you show the community that they're important and valuable to you is you redirect those resources. It is more effective if the candidates themselves are saying, hey, for every $5 you give me, please spend $5 at a local business or please donate $5 to the classroom of your choice on donors choose or please you know, give $5 to this, this domestic violence shelter. You know, that certainly would have more impact than what I'm suggesting. But what I'm suggesting is in lieu of that. Instead of giving your money to consultants who will clearly just set it on fire and clearly just torture everybody, the the amount of money that's going to be focused on Georgia is going to be comparatively similar to what was focused on Maine. And this is a runoff election. So anybody who was going to vote for those guys already did, right? So all you have left to pick up are new voters people who didn't want to vote for either one of them or people who voted for a third party candidate. That's it. Those are your, that's your voter supplies. Mm. (laughs) So you are really limited to who you can swing. And the way you get those people is by saying, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to buy one Christmas present from Georgia. And I'm going to leave a note to please look up these candidates and that I want to make sure that we're investing in our communities and I'm doing this in honor of these candidates. Um, give them a look up or I'm going to, I'm going to fund this classroom. I, I actually, somebody suggested, you know, we should be applying this to Georgia. And I was like, please, please do. So I have a thread going on my Twitter account. Gosh, we've, we've funded probably 200 classroom projects now. Um, and, you know, imagine being a teacher who logs in and sees just note after note, 
you know, I'm supporting your classroom in honor of these two Democrat candidates. And I, I really hope you give them a shot because I believe in community and I support them. And I really want to make sure that you have a candidate that supports you back. Yeah. And, and so the, the impact of, Hey, somebody, you know, pulling up an order and I need to ship out an order and, Oh my gosh, somebody just bought something for me because of one of his candidates, or I now can provide my, my students with a remote learning tool that I didn't have accessible to me because our budgets are too tight. Or, um, you know, now we can provide three extra bed spaces in this domestic violence shelter because people are donating in honor of these candidates. That is going to be so much better for impact, so much better for bang for buck than any other spend dollar for dollar you can possibly do, particularly in a pandemic, particularly in a runoff. Mm. I love that. I love your thought process on fundraising. And I mean, because it, it, listen, I don't know anyone, including the Senate candidates themselves, that, like you said, see those numbers, 80 million, 20 million, just millions and millions of dollars. I read this morning that we spent more than, I think it was 2012 and 2016 combined this year in the middle of a pandemic when people can't pay their rent when people are laid off and we can't get COVID relief, but we're just plowing all this money. And look, I don't, I don't want to say it has no impact because the truth is those are jobs too. Jobs at local TVs, lo- jobs in local radio, jobs in local papers. Uh, definitely lots of print and mailing companies make their living off elections. And I get that, but you know, it, it does seem like the impact could be different. And I do think that there were so many people who contributed. I, I mean, I know family members who like contributed for their first time and were like, I will never do that again, just because the inbox was flooded. They felt like it didn't have a huge impact because the numbers were so massive. And so thinking about how to have an impact this way, where you're supporting beyond just local media in your economy and spreading the candidate's name in truly a, a perfectly socially distanced way. <laughs> Perfectly, It was meant for a pandemic. Yeah, right? Like right. You can do a digital door knock using gossip for positive change without mm-hmm. putting on pants. That's right. That's <laughs> like you right. Can't, you can't be that. Like this method was meant for introverts. It was meant for people who don't want to drive to someone's house. It was meant right. for pandemic. Like it is perfect for that. Uh, and I think that, you know, sure, local media benefits, but I, you know, I worked in marketing before I was an attorney and I, I so. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water. 
leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast15. 